When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. New York City. This is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Stacy. And I'm Virginia. And I'm the governor. And on this week's SVU, all of us are going to review M. Night Shyamalan's Split. Ladies, so nice to see all of you. But I'm going to have to ask you to keep the beast out of the light for the remainder of the show. Later in this episode, we'll bring you cue shots where we recommend some movies you can rent or stream at home right now, all with a common theme. And we were of at least 24 different minds about what to make our theme this week. Multiple personality movies was certainly an option. M. Night Shyamalan, his oeuvre, his career would have been uh, great, but none of his films are available to stream right now on any of the major sites. So instead... We are going to talk about unconventional superhero movies and TV shows, a subject I know nothing about, so I'm going to have to do some fast research. You hate those superheroes. I hate superheroes. Yeah, it's going to be rough. But first, let's do Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few titles that are new on demand. Allison, what have you got for us this time? Well, first up, new on demand on May 16th. Triple X, Return of Xander Cage. Uh, yeah, I have to say, of all of the unasked for sequels that have come our way over the last year or so, in theory, Vin Diesel reprising his extreme sports dude turned government operative 12 years after the last movie performed not that well. Seems like peak, really. But uh, did I miss this in theaters? And do I want to see Vin Diesel ski through a jungle and ride a motorcycle on the ocean? Yes. <laughs> yes, I do. Mm. Uh, the elements don't matter to Xander Cage, and they don't matter to me. No. That is On Demand on May 16th. On Demand on May 19th is a movie I've heard very little about, but that's actually was well-received when it had its premiere. It is The Survivalist. Have you heard of this movie, Matt? I have heard the title, but I remind me what it's about. It's, is it about a survivalist? It is okay, in good. a post-apocalyptic setting. Right. It's a it's a British science fiction kind of thriller, uh, directed by Stephen Fingleton and starring Mia Goth of most most recently A Cure for Wellness and mm-hmm. Martin McCann. Right. And right. 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 Yes. Uh, he plays a survivalist who I don't think ever gets a name who is living in the wilderness when two women, one of them Mia Goth, come across his settlement and kind of try and bargain with him uh, in order to stay 
in a world now where most of the population has died off and mm-hmm. there are raiders going around who have no problem killing you for your food. Right. I've heard this has some Mad Max vibes, though I feel like you can't have Mad Max vibes without cars. Yeah. That said, sort of important. I appreciate what the, the sentiment behind that. I do like those vibes anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is The Survivalist and it will be on demand on May 19th. Finally, on demand on May 23rd, My Life as a Zucchini. Uh, This is another one of those non-Disney, non-Pixar, non-DreamWorks, non-American animated movies that gets nominated for Best Animated Film at the Oscars every year. And you always think they look lovely in the clips, and then you don't get around to seeing them. (laughs) Uh, It's funny, the divide in that category is starker than I think any other, just in terms of the the size of certain movies versus others. I think they changed the rules, though. So next year, starting next year... It may, it may not be the case. Mm, well, I, I will say you should see this movie. Okay. It is a, a Swiss-French co-production, and it uses cute, bright stop motion to tell a story with some seriously dark themes. It's about a boy who is accidentally responsible for the death of his abusive alcoholic mother and gets brought to a group home with other children who have their own troubling stories. And it is about how he eventually kind of makes friends there and and makes a new home for himself amongst all these children who come from uh, sometimes, you know, dark backgrounds. It's uh, surprisingly sweet while also tackling ambitious themes. That is my life as a zucchini, and it will be on demand on May 23rd. To whom am I speaking with now? Dr. Fletcher, it's Barry. It doesn't seem like Barry. Barry is an extroverted leader. Yes, I am. I'm going to take a professional guess based on the description of all 23 identities that live in Kevin's body that I've gotten from Barry. I think I'm talking to Dennis. I'm encouraged we can finally meet. And I've guessed this because you've adjusted the chocolate dish twice since you came in here, and I understand you have OCD. (laughs) I see. Now I see. That's clever. That's clever. But I'm, I'm, I'm not Dennis. The main review on every episode of Film Spotting SVU is chosen by listeners through a poll on our newly redesigned website. Check it out, filmspottingsvu.com. In this poll, your choices were Split, the latest and most successful film in quite a while by M. Night Shyamalan, the unusual documentary casting Jean Benet, and the biopic Neruda from Pablo Lorraine. And that was the order in which they placed with Split, earning a decisive victory with over 51% of the vote. The film is the second in a, in a I guess, a, a new phase of Shyamalan's career, I would say, sort of more back-to-basic, stripped-down, smaller thrillers. Uh, after a largely, some might even say wildly unsuccessful period where he tried his hand at making big-budget blockbuster films like The Last Airbender and, God help us, After Earth, uh, Split more closely recalls the earlier films that made M. Night Shyamalan a household name. And it was his biggest hit in many years. It made about as much money as The Last Airbender on less than a tenth of that film's budget. That's uh, impressive. That is very impressive, actually. And I guess it helps when you have one guy playing most of the characters. That saves some money. That would be James McAvoy as Kevin. He is a man suffering from disassociative identity disorder. And amongst his many personalities, there's Dennis, who has obsessive compulsive disorder. And there's Hedwig, who's very childlike. 
And in conversation with his therapist, Dr. Fletcher, who's paid by Betty Buckley, there is discussion of this 24th mysterious personality called the Beast. It made me think of Seinfeld a lot. Do you remember the episode of Seinfeld with the Beast? I do not. That was what they called the stinky car, the B.O. and the stinker. It's uh. the Beast. So I, <laughs> that's, that was a problem for me, personally. I don't know if anyone else had that. But anyway, the Beast, yes. And uh, with Kevin's personalities fighting for control, some of them believe that uh, they can then transform themselves into this beast, something more than an ordinary man. But to bring out this beast, they need to commit an act of human sacrifice. And so they kidnap three teenage girls, including Anya Taylor-Joy's Casey, and lock them up in a basement. It's up to the young women to find their way out before they become fodder for this horrible... I don't know what you would call it, experiment? I'm not quite sure. As we already mentioned, this was very much a comeback for Shyamalan. On a tiny $9 million budget, the film has made $275 million worldwide. That is impressive. And it was his best-reviewed movie as well since Signs 15 years ago, at least according to Rotten Tomatoes. So my simple question for you, Allison, is are you on board the hype train with Split? Or are you having second thoughts? Mm. or third or fourth or 24th thoughts about this thriller i enjoyed this more than i thought i would mm -hmm. honestly i you know it was when i missed that when it was coming out in theaters because i believe it came out around the sundance film festival yeah it was away, the week of I the think. week of and uh i the trailer had not sold me uh you know i think that you see james mcavoy you see a lot of him doing the personalities and it doesn't really give you the ramp up that the movie does mm -hmm. in kind of easing you into exactly how his character works. Uh, so I had not expected much from this. And I will say, I think its aims are fairly modest. Its scale is modest. And I, I feel like it, it fulfilled everything it, it kind of aimed for. It was... I think especially with what happens at the end and the kind of place it sets for itself... Do we do we consider this a spoiler? You managed yeah, to stay unspoiled for... for a while until the well. I don't want to spoil. We can talk about it later. Yes. I think we should talk non-spoilery for a while, okay, and, and then, then we'll, we'll go full spoiler. Okay, I will say that the context that that gave made me like the movie. I, I think made me understand what it was going for. Yeah. In way, you know, as opposed to just looking at it as at a thriller, mm -hmm. as a thriller, to look at it as kind of uh, an origin story right. for James McAvoy's character. Mm -hmm. I think worked really well, mm -hmm. actually. Yeah. I, you know, I, I don't think that... If you look at it as a... In any way, a thriller that attempts to depict mental illness as even vaguely realistic, much less like, uh, you know, dissociative identity disorder, which is a highly debated, uh, with no, very little consensus in the psychiatric community kind of disorder, and that almost certainly does not ever work the way it does in movies, where people have very cleanly drawn personalities. Right. Um, you know, it is a, an extremely movie version of mental illness that almost isn't it it has almost no bearing to what actual mental illness is like at all. Mm -hmm. I think as long as you can kind of accept that, and I, I think the, the kind of context it places this in helps that. Uh, I, I think that, yeah, it, it worked for me. You know, it was a reminder for me that uh, Shyamalan has a really good sense of space, that he is good with the camera. He is good with kind of how he moves the camera through space. Uh, it made me remember that I have liked him a lot as a director. Mm -hmm. uh, but how about you? 
I think we – it's funny. I think we pretty much agree in a lot of ways, but I think I didn't like it quite as much as you. And a lot of it has to do with that ending, which we won't spoil yet. We'll get to it. And how you were saying, like, it kind of reframes the movie. And I guess my issue was the movie that it sort of reveals itself to be, I felt like I would rather see just that movie. It's like it almost feels like a coming attraction for a more interesting movie in a way in that this movie is largely, you know, it's almost like um, I mean, certainly in setup. I don't think in execution it's quite that, but it's almost the setup of like a torture porn film in terms of, you know, these women are trapped and can they escape and this guy is threatening them. And it, uh, like all of that stuff I found pretty unconvincing, uninteresting. I didn't even find it that scary. Like, I don't think it works all that well as like a horror movie, even though that's ostensibly what it is. I agree that sort of like when it unfolds at the end, you go, oh, this is what it really is. It works better as that. And like the stuff about Kevin and all of his personalities, while I do not think it in any way reflects a a realistic depiction of um, you know mental illness or even this particular illness. I thought McAvoy was great. I thought his all the voices and the physicality that he brings to it was really impressive and fun. And his scenes with the therapist and the therapist character, who's sort of both very kind of, you know, it's interesting to hear her talk about his illness, but also she kind of is She's not quite as smart as she thinks she is, or she's at least a little out of her depth, essentially. She's, like, underestimating him and his kind of craziness. I liked all of that. But I just thought, like, the details and the specificity of, like, where they're trapped and are they going to get out. And, like, I didn't really find there was much attention to that uh, in terms of the details. And I wasn't entirely convinced by it. And it didn't – I don't think Shyamalan really cared about it either, which is sort of the – the proof of that is sort of the ending, which is like much less about that than it is about this other thing. Yeah, I suppose for me, it looked, it felt more like a very dark character study than it did. Uh, I, I never even kind of really took it as a thriller, mm-hmm. as, as a kind of kidnapping thriller, though I, I mean, that it undeniably is. Yeah. You know, I think uh, I did appreciate that, uh, that, that having the three characters, it, it took time to at least have the characters feel like three different, you know, Anya Taylor-Joy is obviously the main character of the movie along with McAvoy, but the other two girls didn't just feel like bodies like that were there to be, you know, like they, they had a friendship dynamic that Anya Taylor-Joy did not fit into. Yeah. They had, they actually had active, they made like active attempts to escape that I thought. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I feel like that there are a lot of times where movies that are about captivity are often mm-hmm. just about, uh, you know, like the women are just like these bodies that are kept, you know, in, mm-hmm. in spaces. And I, I think that it, the movie at least tried to give them, to make them act like active parties in this. I'm making I'm making a mm face at you. That well, the she, I mean they see. climb up the I mean the, the movie the ceiling. certainly I guess. I mean the movie certainly makes Anya Taylor Joy's character the main character. And mm-hmm. I think maybe that's part of the problem is like really Kevin should be the main character in this movie in a sense. I think they get they get equal screen time. I, I suppose they, they maybe they do, but we don't get any do we get any flashbacks? I don't think so. To Kevin's life. I mean, like we You we... see one of him under the bed. Oh, right, uh, right, right. But I mean, you see you... also you see him outside of the space. Yes, which I think deflate. I mean, in a way, it may... those scenes are great, but they also deflate the sort the of tension. tension. Absolutely. And so I guess you're right in the sense that if you're gonna say, well, this isn't really that kind of thriller, it then that's not a problem. If you're if you're trying to get invested more in the in the entrapment angle, that doesn't help. I just you know, I, I think that she 
even though we see these these flashbacks, and there is sort of like a, you know, it, they're sort of important to the ending in terms of when there's this final confrontation, the way that it ends, as you know, we only it only makes sense with those flashbacks, I guess. But I don't think we really learned all that much. That I didn't really think those flashbacks really that were all that interesting or added a ton. Whereas I was always I was perpetually more interested with with Kevin and was always interested to learn more about him. And so it's like again, it's like getting to what the movie is getting at. Eventually, it's like he really should be the focal point. And the movie sort of splits it, and it and the the split to me feels uneven in terms of who I care about or who I'm interested in. Where I didn't really I didn't really care that much about and, and again it's all it should, should all be about are these women going to get out of here and i didn't really find myself all that invested in that where i was much more interested in just like is the therapist going to discover what's going on is kevin going to have an even more of a breakdown is the beast real all these sorts of things i found that much more interesting well sure i mean they're basically like vehicles into his story right yeah. like we can accept that like we we see almost nothing of right. of what their lives are like before this we understand only that uh, they're not really friends with Anya Taylor-Joy's character. She doesn't really have any friends, right? And then uh, and then they are immediately swept up into this, into someone else's world, right? right? At this, tre- this hugely dangerous transition point. Right. I, I mean, I can understand that feeling frustrating as a way to get to the story, but I also feel like, I mean, uh, this is basically following the tracks of another story that basically takes a, feels like a prequel. <laughs> you know, in a way, like is another, it follows in the path of an, or uh, in the tradition of another origin story. So I, I guess, I mean, also I knew, I guess I knew about, I was spoiled on that long, long ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that clearly also determined how I saw the movie. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's like, it's the, like you were saying that this showed you that, you know, Shyamalan, he can be a, a good director. And I think he can. To me, it's like it in some ways exhibits both the best and worst of his impulses. Like moment to moment, he's a very gifted filmmaker and framing and editing and Well, and also, I mean, movement. given that like, you know, this is a relatively low budget movie, a lot of it takes place in one set of rooms, yes. right? Yes. And that you get a real sense of the space. Mm-hmm. And he he likes to kind of track around a room and like down that hallway right. uh, in ways that really emphasize how the space is connected, and also how little of it there is. That's all true. But what I, what I was also going to say was that, you know, it does, while it doesn't build to a conventional, like, he was dead all along twist, I think what we're alluding to, and which we should probably just get to in a minute anyway, that the ending, it does, it, it does sort of feel like a, you know, like, I've been withholding, or just sort of like shifting focus, or kind of keeping my cards close to my vest to reveal this thing at the end of the movie, where it's like and, and and it's effective. It's like a moment of, ah, oh, okay, yeah. But I you know, it's one of those things where you feel like, well, if you had just to- sort of made this if you just told us this this story straight. This is just basically like an origin story for this character. I'm I might have been a more interesting movie to me. You know, without all the cuz if it's not going to be a real truly a thriller, if the thriller is kind of just like a sleight of hand trick to hide what you're ultimately doing, just just do what you ultimately want to do. Just make the the most interesting character the main character. I'm not. I, I I know that's not who he is. Like that goes against everything he believes in as a director. But I just I don't know. I feel like I might like that movie better. Yeah, I say it didn't bother me that it split the difference between uh Oof, that, between him and I can't believe I mean, you said that. It didn't split the difference. Uh, I mean, I like it's basically how the movie is structured, right? It's yeah. just demanding you split your attention Ugh. between the victim and. 
the perpetrator slash other victim. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that, I mean, you, you kind of needed this character. You needed uh, her character to allow you that sense of sympathy for, for his, mm-hmm. right? To have the idea that they have abuse in common, that his like kind of warped idea of the world and what true, you know, true fulfillment and true humanity is. Uh, I, I think that I, I, I liked as frustrating as you found those flashbacks. I actually, I felt like that build was like in a pulpy way, totally good and earned mm. to her, to their kind of like matched moment of, of having come from scarring, literally scarring in her, in her uh, case, childhoods. All right. Should we talk about the ending more? Stop stop beating around the bush here. Stop stepping around it very awkwardly. Yes. All right. So here we go. Spoilers are starting right now. If you don't want to know, just fast forward a couple minutes and uh, yeah. So the, the, the sort of revelation at the end is that this character, Kevin, uh, is essentially like a supervillain is the origin of a supervillain essentially and that he exists in the same world as the character from Unbreakable another M Night Shyamalan movie and that movie it was i think what you were talking about in terms of origin stories like that movie it was it looked from the surface just like a weird Shyamalan movie it was the movie made after Sixth Sense you were like what is going on and then by the end of the movie you realized sort of very cleverly he had created a superhero without you realizing it which i i haven't seen that movie in a long time but i really liked that movie when it came out and so this is sort of like the mirror image of that. Instead of a superhero, you've watched the origin story of a supervillain who even gets a name at the end of the movie. He's the Horde. The Horde, which, uh, yeah, it's not a bad supervillain name. Oh, it could be worse. Right. And we see Bruce Willis looking, I thought, very haggard. Like, he yeah, looked, he, uh, the years of superheroing. Yeah, the years of superheroing for poor David Dunn, his character, have not been kind, hard I guess. Hard on a guy. Hard on a guy to be a superhero for the last 15 years or whatever. And that, and we we also now know that they are making a sort of joined sequel between the two, which I guess will be interesting. I'm not quite sure how that's going to work, but yeah. So uh, that was the the ending, which you I guess knew all along that that was the twist. Yes. I only really, I mean, I had heard rumblings that there was some kind of twist. I didn't really know what it was until yeah, M Night Shyamalan was like tweeting last week. Happy to announce the joint uh, Unbreakable and Split sequel called Glass, which was the name of. Samuel L. Jackson's character in um, in the in the in the previous movie. So yeah, I don't know what else you want to say about it. I mean, you you do you do you want to see the continuing adventures of the Horde versus uh, David? Well, Dunn? You know, I I feel like as and we can talk about this in the next section. I certainly have a sense of exhaustion with the superhero genre. That said, I I do like Unbreakable and I like Split as superhero stories. That that kind of that took place entirely before any superheroic action functionally, you right. know, or supervillain action. Yeah. Like until this point, I like, I mean, the thing that I always feel that I am starved for in watching superhero stories is, you know, char- actual character development and actual downtime, which yeah. is, I, both of those movies are filled with, mm-hmm. you know, I think that, it is way less interesting to me when someone is then embarking on a path of like wreaking havoc or saving the world. Like that part is the least interesting part of the story. Mm-hmm. You know, I know mm-hmm. that it enables the action, but it's so easy not to care in right. so many of those movies. So I actually, I feel like having a movie that spent, that was just about the kind of really tortured psyche of this future supervillain and having a movie that was about the reluctant, 
heroism of a normal guy who realizes slowly that he has this power. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's an approach I really enjoy. Yeah. And yeah, and, and it's funny because we see so many origin stories in more conventional superhero yeah, movies. But how they, many times right, have you watched Batman's parents die? Right, exactly. Or but Uncle I, Ben die. Yes, absolutely. But I will give Shyamalan credit that he makes his versions of that feel a lot fresher and more interesting and much more grounded in, in characters and people. I do wonder, you know, because I, I did like Unbreakable a lot. And I, again, I haven't seen it in a long time, so who knows what I would think now. But generally, I would say I, I think that that's a better movie than this. And I wonder if that's because, you know, when you're making it about a superhero and a generally like a good guy, you can make a movie about this character and be like, oh, it just turned out to be a superhero movie. You didn't realize it all along. Whereas with Kevin and with The Horde, I almost wonder if he was like, well, I can't just make him the main character because he's the bad guy or whatever. Like, there needs to be a character to root for or something. And maybe that's why he made this this story so that we do have this, quote-unquote, this heroine, this character to sort of latch onto to root for. Uh, but, I, again, I just kind of wonder if there is a way to make a very an even more interesting movie where the bad guy, quote-unquote, obviously he's much more complicated than that. But that that character could be the total focus. I just feel like with a, with the way the character is set up, you have to see him from an outside perspective because all of his conflict is otherwise internal. Like, do you want to see a bunch of James McAvoy sitting in a room that yes. represents his psyche? I kind of do. Fighting for like a light. Why not? I definitely do not. See, oh, we agree. We disagree there. <laughs> I feel like that could be kind of great. Yeah, I know. It sounds like a nightmare acting exercise and I do not want to see it. I liked seeing all the different James McAvoy's here. And I, if you don't want to see that, I, I have bad news for you because i almost guarantee that there'll be a scene like that i don't mind the different james mcavoy's i do not want a room full of them together you don't think there you don't think that scene will be in glass that a scene like that i, I almost would, won't be the whole movie the way well, you no. know you're kind of requesting i don't need the whole movie but i, I you want would, a lot of it this you would be an interesting wager well, this would be an interesting wager to see will we get that scene in in glass mm, i, I, think I can't will. tell i can't tell if i if i think that it will be there or not i hope not i don't know I don't know. All right. Well, we'll find out when, uh, whenever that movie comes out. It's coming in the next couple of years. It's 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 headed our way. In the meantime, this was uh, Split. It is available now for rent. The world will understand now. The beast is real. He's done awful things to people, and he'll do awful things to you. People have been watching a lot of superhero movies recently. Have they? That maybe the superhero movie has become a major box office force. Has it? I know. It's shocking, but somehow the (laughs) dominant genre of our moment seems to be superhero. It feels kind of like a Twilight Zone episode where like, you know, like a kid, 13 year old (laughs) kid, let's just call him Matt. Just pick a name at random. You know, he's a shy nerd. 
you know, and he's just wishing someday. I just wish I could see. I wish I could see Spider-Man and a movie. And maybe people would not make fun of me for liking comic books. And then, and then at ironic the e- punishment is yes, you will I, see I, so I, many Spider-Men. Yes. Yeah, do you remember the episode of The Simpsons? I think it was a Trias of Horror where Homer's like being, sh- the donuts are being oh, shoved yes. down his mouth. Absolutely. I kind of feel like that some days. Yes. The donuts are have just. Have all the superhero all the donut, movies. Right, yeah. except he enjoyed it. And yes. I, there are times where I don't, I, I don't enjoy all the donuts. Yes. They get it. It's a lot of donuts. They do. Well, I feel like. You often see, because these movies are so expensive, the the mainstream ones are so expensive and they have to be exported. They have to really play large internationally to even make a profit. You These movies are big. They can only go big. Yeah. They can only uh, shop spectacle around. Yes. And uh, that tends to get kind of exhausting. It gets repetitive. It gets a little tiresome. Yeah, they all blend together. I mean, by their nature, now they try to make them blend together. And that can yield some, and I, you know, I look, I'm still a, a, a dork who loves this stuff at heart. I was reading some comics last night before I went to sleep. So there, it's not like I still can't, I can't find pleasure in these movies. Guardians of the Galaxy, I thought was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. And it's fun when they have the cute little moments that connect everything. But... You're right. The the bigger they are, the 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 broader they have to go and sort of the less interesting generally speaking they're allowed to be. Yeah, I still enjoy a lot of them as entertainment, but certainly you get that feeling you're only watching the big events or you're only watching like a season finale over and over and over again. Yes. And um, yeah. There is a weird thing where and I've been thinking about this. I was something I'm working on writing something about it. it's like you know movies now it's every like you're saying spectacle we have to get how are we going to differentiate ourselves from television well visual spectacle bigness we go big and yet what do they end up making by making all these things connect it feels like it's like a tv show you go to the movies to watch it's a strange thing like and if they're trying to make them all feel special and unique and worth getting out of your house and going to the movie theater for but they all kind of look alike and they connect together, and they end up being basically a TV show. Just a slow, expensive it's like, TV right, show. It's a really expensive TV show that you have to wait two years in between <laughs> each installment, installment. Yeah. which is not necessarily in an age of instantaneous you know, binge-watch culture. I don't know if that's going to work out in the long term. I yeah, really don't. I'm curious. But so we wanted to talk about unconventional superhero stories here, stories that uh, either in movie or TV form – attempted to parody or subvert or rewrite the very codified uh, rhythms of some of these stories, uh, whether uh, they are looking at downtime, superhero downtime, or looking at someone with delusions of being a superhero. Mm. There are certainly some of those. Um, there could be no big blue lights in the sky no one can on this fight list. A big blue light in the sky. No. No portals. That need to be closed by people working together. Ixnay on that, on the, on our choices today. Yes. That is not allowed. Is there room for an indie superhero movie or a kind With of With a like, portal in the sky? Or anything. Like, do you think that this is a genre that can really still have space for, for things that... I mean, I guess Split is an attempt to get at that, a $9 million a, movie. And it was a huge hit. It was a really successful... It it's like one of the biggest success stories of the year. I guess that and Get Out would be the two big success stories in terms of non gigantic superhero movies so far 
So apparently it apparently it can as long as it's like a very like a, a horror film with a high concept also. As long as you can do as long as you can make anything into a high concept horror movie you're you're good. You're golden. All right, who wants to go first here? You want me to start? Why don't you start? All right. Well, one thing that almost all conventional superhero stories do or have no matter the medium, no matter the company or the you know that they're based on or the characters that are the focus is that that focus is usually the superhero you know makes sense i guess that he or she is the one who's front and center and very little attention you were kind of talking about this in our split review it's like there's very little attention paid to the ordinary people that live in this universe you know the people around them the impact that superheroes have on their lives um you know i guess if you're like best friends with a superhero or like Superman just happens to, like, work at the desk next to you at the newspaper. We're going to learn about you. Like, your life will be affected and we'll get to see that. But if you're just an ordinary person working a regular job and you don't have any direct connection to the world of superheroes, you are basically invisible in these stories. And in some of these movies, it's pretty clear, like, no consideration is given to you as you and thousands of your fellow metropolis metropolisians, let's say, are slaughtered. Uh, off camera or just out of frame. And personally, I think this is one of the, like, even though we have so many superhero stories right now, I think this is, like, the, the most interesting and unexamined part of these stories is that you don't still, you don't see this very much. How does the existence of a Superman or the X-Men impact a regular person? And there have been a few comics throughout the years to sort of explore this idea. Um, and some of them, um, like one that I like in particular is this Marvel comic called Damage Control, which is about a company that cleans up after superhero fights. They can be really good, but almost all of them have been canceled very quickly. There, none of them have been. No one wants that. No one wants it. Right. People go, oh, that's a great idea. And then no one buys it. And ironically, that's exactly what happened to my first pick, the DC television series Powerless, which just ran for a couple of episodes this year on NBC. It is basically a workplace comedy like The Office with the twist being that it is set in the world of the DC universe and that these characters' lives are indirectly affected by the presence of DC heroes and villains. In the first episode, the main character, Emily, who's played by Vanessa Hudgens, uh, her train to work on her first day is it's literally knocked off the track by a battle between Crimson Fox and Jack-O-Lantern. So, you know, very minor characters you don't see batman show up but you do see his cousin van wayne uh the cousin of bruce wayne who's played by alan tudyk who's really really funny on this show supposedly is bruce's cousin i can't say for certain but i don't think in the comics he has a cousin bruce's family i don't think he has any family in the he comics have a sprawling family right uh, asking him for money that relative. might be a good idea for a, a I character would love that, actually um and it is a funny idea for the show this idea that you know the most selfless the most self uh destructive hero that'll do anything to save the world has this just jerk selfish jerk of a of a relative working for his company van wayne i i like that a lot um, the other employees at this office include Danny Pudi from uh, Community. He's really funny on it as well. And like a lot of mainstream superhero stories, Powerless uses these these ideas, these character ideas as an allegory. In this case, it is you know the title basically gives it away. Just the idea that 
you are a worker drone at a faceless company going to your job day after day, you can feel pretty powerless. And I, I felt watching – I watched a couple of episodes. I had not seen the show as it was going on. And watching a couple of episodes this weekend, the workplace stuff when it's just about a workplace comedy is a little hit or miss. But where the, I like the show a lot is when it starts to butt up against superheroes and considering how it would be to live in this world. And the char- the company that they all work for – you know, it's like a uh, division of Wayne Enterprises that tries to exploit the danger of superheroes for commercial gain, like with security devices and gadgets and things like that, which I thought were pretty clever and funny the way that they come up with new things that people might actually buy to protect themselves in a world of superheroes. And, you know, it, it's tough because I do think for a, a mainstream audience, when people hear superheroes comic books, they just want the superheroes. Uh, but personally, I love this sort of thing, and I enjoy looking beyond the center to see, you know, like you were saying, Alison, the characters, to see how real people, relatable people would live in this world. And I don't think the show Powerless entirely found its footing in – certainly in the couple of episodes I watched, I laughed. But there were definitely some parts that you're like, you know, they hadn't quite found the groove, the characters. But I could definitely see this evolving into something that was really, really smart and sharp and worthwhile. But it's already been canceled apparently. So Aww. that's not going to happen. But you can watch the episodes they did make on Hulu that is powerless. I actually watched all of those. Oh, you did? All of the series. I, yeah, I, I don't think it ever clicked, really. Right, didn't it didn't quite like, get there. It was always, I think, a little too chipper in tone for... Yes, it has a very sunny, sort of upbeat, lively... Right. considering what it's depicting, which is like what it is like to The drudgery and... also and what is like the danger. That is constantly, yes, being partially yes. destroyed. Clearly I, it was a choice to be like these characters just, it's just part of their lives. Right. Um, I will say this, though. I think it has a really wonderful opening sequence that captures the, the, the title card. Yes. The title credit. I love the it's opening so credits. Good. Beautiful. And I think it captures the kind of like that like touch of melancholy about yes. the basic premise that like never really shows up in the show itself. Yeah. The title. The credits are like famous and especially the very the opening is the action comics number one, the iconic shot of Superman. And then it zooms into this woman in the background and, and like Vanessa Hudgens name comes up and then it's. That it continues that way with with you know the comic book fights and then they zoom in on someone in the background. It's great. Whoever designed them did a, a fabulous job. I wonder if because it was similar to The Office, they didn't want to go too much like the tone of The Office, and so they tried to be a little more bubbly just to differentiate itself. I know that there was certainly there was some uh, someone was originally attached to it and left. Yeah, they, and they, they went it was originally a... supposed to be like an insurance company that tries to insure and like. In a, in a city that... It was a getting... totally different pilot. Yes. I know that. So, I, I mean, I think they, they tried to... I mean, DC has never done a... This was... I think they touted it as their first comedy series. Right. And it, you know, clearly took that... They didn't quite have time to settle in. But I will say, I do love that opening sequence. You can find it... It's a pleasant show. You can find it on YouTube if you just want to see that. I, yeah. It is worth checking out. I also picked a TV series for my first recommendation. I, both of my recommendations are parodies of superhero genre. I am clearly a little antsy with certain aspects of this genre. Uh, so my first recommendation is a anime series called One Punch Man. You can find it on Netflix and on Hulu. Only one season so far, 12 episodes. It is about a 25-year-old superhero named Saitama 
He uh, does not have a superhero name, at least not yet. Uh, and superheroics are something that's very easy to do in the world of the series, uh, in which monsters and supervillains are constantly attacking. And there is, in fact, a professional organization of heroes with rankings and public profiles. Saitama looks unimpressive. He's actually drawn less detailed most of the time than the other characters. He's bald, has a round head. His face looks somewhere between like the rolling eyes emoji and the neutral face emoji. And his backstory is not very exciting. He took up superheroics for fun. He trained for it by doing a dedicated but like pretty normal workout routine that he reveals as a dramatic secret eventually to a group of unimpressed people. He lives in a very small apartment. He's often seen running errands in normal clothes and lazing around as often as he is in costume fighting evil. And, and this is the, the, the key to the show. He is so inexplicably overpowered that, as the title says, one punch is almost all it ta- almost inevitably all it takes to make an enemy explode in a splatter of viscera, mm. and this depresses him immensely. Uh, there are all of these battles that are start with this like extremely dramatic, you know, arrival of this giant villain who like delivers a monologue about his motivations and then gets punched once and dies. Um, And so Saitama starts a series uh, experiencing this kind of existential crisis. What does it mean to be a superhero when nothing is a challenge? It's as if Dr. Manhattan from Watchmen were in a comedy fixated on making fun of shonen manga tropes. Uh, Everyone else in the series is extremely serious uh, and very monologue prone. In fact, Saitama gains a disciple very quickly and to his great chagrin, a cyborg teenager named Genos, who's terribly earnest and has a whole backstory involving a doctor who remade him after uh, after being attacked and a rival cyborg he wants to fight and Saitama is greatly disinterested in this. Um, the first season is only 12 episodes, as I said. It does start falling into more conventional territory by even the end of that, but the beginning is pretty wonderful. I do highly recommend the first episode, in the very least, just for the kind of very funny uh, just deflating of any of the kind of usual grandiose drama uh, of ramping up to a big fight sequence. Uh, that is One Punch Man, and it is on Netflix and on Hulu. Sounds interesting. I've ne- I'd not only never seen it, I'd never heard of it. It's a good name for a superhero. Yeah, it's, One Punch Man. Right? It's, it sounds like a very awkward name, which I think fits him. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. For my second pick, I went with a movie I've seen many, many times. It's probably my favorite unconventional quote-unquote unconventional superhero movie the other one we uh have already talked about on the show so i couldn't pick it that was super which is another unconventional superhero movie that i like i really like chronicle which i don't know Mm -hmm. if it's sort of an unconventional superhero movie i think so Uh, but i've talked about it on this podcast as well before yeah super if you want to hear us talk about super that was on svu number 110 which was our uh, controversial comedies episode and i think i talked about chronicle back on number 14 uh, not another think, teen movie podcast. I think you could have probably probably re- brought at it this back. Point. Yeah. No. No. Must All right. Stay pure. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Well, uh, my second pick is an unconventional superhero movie in a few ways. It is not based on an, an existing superhero, which I think marks it as unconventional in and of itself. Um, it is also kind of like Split. Actually, it treats the idea of being a superhero or having superpowers as something that is more of a curse. It is something that is more of the basis of a horror story than something uplifting or inspiring or to make someone watching it have sort of this escapist feeling. 
in this movie, the sacrifice involved in the sort of self-sacrifice of all superheroism includes sacrificing the character's body, his face, his life, even his sanity. And the movie is Darkman, directed by Sam Raimi, who, of course, went on to direct the very conventional but very good original Spider-Man movie trilogy. And this film, which he made before it, it's sort of like uh, the gene splice of Evil Dead and Spider-Man, or at least his Spider-Man movies. You have a young Liam Neeson playing the main character, a scientist. He's on the verge of perfecting this synthetic skin capable of making masks so perfect you could pass for anyone alive. Like I could have an Allison mask and I could walk around and everyone think I was Allison. It'd be great. I wish I could. I could go to BuzzFeed and imagine get eat all the, the free food, all the free snacks you want. Oh my God! It's, what a what a wonderful soda world. machine. Yes. Yeah. God damn. But there's a catch because the uh, chemical compound of the masks isn't exactly right. And so, do you remember the amount of time that the masks last, Allison and Darkman? Oh Ninety nine like, minutes. Yeah. It's yeah. such a comic booky concept. <laughs> Ninety nine minutes they last, and then they break down. And before he can finish his formula, these underworld gangster types blow up his lab with him in it and so everyone including his fiance played by francis mcdormand uh think he's dead in this explosion but he has survived albeit horrifically scarred and with his nerves like fried and deadened which gives him a kind of brilliant low-level superpower he is so screwed up he can't feel pain he can be hurt he just can't feel it he's not impervious he's not invulnerable but he just doesn't feel it And over the course of the film, he rebuilds his lab as best he can to try to perfect his masks, hoping that maybe he can use them to get back to a normal life and also use them to get revenge against the mobsters who destroyed his life. And I guess when you say it like that, it is a pretty conventional narrative. What makes it unconventional really is uh, Liam Neeson's manic and borderline psychotic performance uh, and the way that Darkman, um, which he sort of takes that name up at the end for no real reason, discernible reason, other than it's a superhero movie. Um, at times, he seems less like a hero hero than a serial killer who just happens to be murdering bad people instead of innocent civilians. And it very much fits in with the Sam Raimi, very bleak sense of humor, especially in his early movies, where he would basically just, they're just torturing the protagonists for his own personal and our jollies. And in this moral universe of, uh, I guess, the Raimi-verse, life sucks, and then you get chased by zombies or blown up by gangsters. And so the best thing to do is just to go and embrace it, strap on a chainsaw or a 99-minute mask, and go kick some butt. They did make some sequels to Darkman, direct-to-video, including one of the all-time great direct-to-video titles, Darkman 3, Die, Darkman, Die. Man, that is something. That is something, right? And I feel like if the movie was made today, for sure, they would have made a TV show out of it, which would actually be great. I think Darkman would make a great TV show. It seems tailor-made to uh, serialized storytelling, and it's kind of surprising it hasn't happened yet, actually. But the original movie holds up really well. It is, again, when you were talking, Allison, about how when you're making a movie for $200 million that has to be shown all over the world, you can't take chances. You can't be weird. Darkman is weird, and it's dark in a way that superhero movies, even the supposedly grim ones, are really not allowed to be. You know, dark superhero movies today mean, like, very attractive people grimacing and screaming and scowling in front of, like, a cloudy CGI background. Sure. 
I will say this. I and I really like Darkman. I thought of it a bit watching Logan because yeah. Logan it, it, Darkman does something that I kind of wish superhero movies did more, which is to talk about to have powers come at a cost. Right. You know? Absolutely. And that in Logan his like enhancements are killing him basically. Yes. It's, you know, and I think that that idea that that these powers are not just some incredible enhancement to your life. Yes. And then your angst comes separately. Right. That, that Gift it is, and curse. Right. But more curse. Right. That, that there is like a lot of value to that narratively yes. that just doesn't get, it's, it's a little too grim, I guess, to really get incorporated into right. most. Well, because main- so many, the ones we see now, the mainstream ones, they're escapist, you know, and there's, that's, that's fun to do. It's fun to imagine, but it's also fun to see someone horribly destroyed by, having this happen to them and uh, seeing what they do next. So that's Dark Man, which is available right now for rent on all the usual sites. For my second pick, I went with a movie that I think is particularly pleasurable when you take it in context of the $150 million, $200 million budgets that so many superhero movies encompass these days. It is called Spaghetti Man. And it is available on Amazon Prime and Hulu. This was a 2016 film from Mark Potts, who made this movie with his comedy troupe Heckbender for what looks like maybe $40. I don't think that's really even that much of an exaggeration. It stars Benjamin Crutcher as a fired pizza delivery guy and generally indifferent, unkempt dude named Clark. Uh, who lives with a roommate, Dale, played by Winston Carter, who appears to be his only friend. And even he's lucky in that because uh, Dale is also the kind of guy who's willing to cover more than his share of the rent when Clark gets fired. And then Clark is involved with an incident uh, in which there is a bowl of spaghetti and a malfunctioning microwave, a classic origin story. And he wakes up with the ability to shoot strands of spaghetti from his hands and also to pee spaghetti Though that's less useful. Okay, yes. sure. Dale wants his friend to use his miraculous powers to help humanity. Clark prefers vigilante work for cash. He puts a paper bag on his head as a disguise, stops crime, and then demands payment from the almost victims in a way that sometimes verges on mugging. Mm-hmm. There is a touch of unbreakable to the larger arc that develops when a villain emerges. And I will say this, despite the absurdity, the total absurdity of the premise and the extreme low-budget nature of this film, it keeps a pretty straight face as it develops. It does not wink a lot. It, uh, it, it understands it as a comedy, but it does not blow up its own premise. Is the acting rough? Sure. Can the action and the production value look a little stilted? Of course, this is an extremely low-budget film. But does it ever get less funny when Clark hurls a wad of cooked noodles into <laughs> someone's face? No. I mean, I'm laughing it just as you always, describe it. It is always, always great. Yeah. Um, so for a, just like a totally goofy take on a very expensive genre, I would say look to Spaghetti Man. It is on Amazon Prime and on Hulu. You have sold me. I am watching this thing. Oh my god, I'm sorry. What's going on, Clark? That came from inside of me. We gotta take you to a doctor. I don't want to tell anybody about this. This could be used for good, maybe. Now I regret saying anything to you. That's not what a superhero does. Who said anything about being a superhero? You could clean up the streets and beat up bad guys. Or, or, I can get paid to punch people? Who are you? I'm the Spaghetti Man. All right, let's talk about some new movies, Allison. 
let's not name the segment. We've long since abandoned it. Yes. The, the title Screw was unwieldy. You, long title. Yes. The new title is Matt and Allison talking about... Yes. All right. So how about we talk about... Wait, let me get the title do, correct. Can you wait? No, 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 no. Okay, without looking, do you remember the title? I did. I, I like laughed when it appeared on screen, but no. You cannot. Act- I had to just look it up. King Arthur. Colon. Colon. Legend of the Sword. I like that you have seen the movie. It has a subtitle. I didn't and even And you could know. not remember I literally, it. until the subtitle appeared in smaller font next to King Arthur. That it had I a subtitle? It had a subtitle. Well, it's very, I'm looking at the poster right now, and it's very, very small, the subtitle. Yeah. It is like, King Arthur. Legend of the Sword. Like, yeah. that's how they're sort of marketing it. They don't really want you to to think about the subtitle. And I don't know why, frankly, it has the subtitle. I don't know why either. Is it, it, are they, it, like, legally obligated to have a title, a subtitle? It's possible because, I mean, there was a King Arthur movie called Just King Arthur, King like, Arthur. 13 years ago, something like that. Uh, came out in the mid-2000s. Yeah, so it came out, like, yeah, 13 years ago. That was one with Clive Owen and Kieran Knightley. Antoine Fuqua. Antoine Fuqua. This one is Guy Ritchie. I don't think I ever saw the 2003 I, King Arthur. If I have, I have it long forgotten long it. since faded yes. from memory, much in the way the sword and the stone has Uh-oh. passed but, into legend. But then will this, will Legend of the Sword be the definitive King Arthur? It Matt? is sort of a cruelly ironic subtitle because I have a hard time imagining this movie ever becoming a legend. Like it, I mean, or then again, maybe people will be like, did that movie exist? Or is this, a, this something we heard? I can't imagine this movie being remembered even six weeks from now. It is. It's not terrible. I I thought. No, it's just. It's, it's very. It's very professional. It is like. It's, it is professionally made. It's like what if King Arthur, but sort of Cockney. <laughs> what if King Arthur was like vaguely snatch like? It's right. Guy Ritchie, it and it, it, it has, has the energy and the best. Those are the best sequences. Absolutely, it has sequences that feel like one of Guy Ritchie's early crime movies. Everyone's kind of talking very like snarkily with very thick working class English accents. There's some fun sequences. Like there's a sequence where we, in this movie, King Arthur is basically like Moses. Like he's like an orphan who's been like thrown in the river and and, and, and rescued from a basket. Right. And he grew up as a, a street urchin. Right. On the mean streets of Londinium. Yeah. And yeah, we see his childhood in like super fast speed motion, which I thought was cool. That was clever. Yeah. Yes. And there are sequ- there are sequences like that sort of like that also where they're talking about a heist or a scheme or whatever and we flash back and forth, just like an old guy Richie movie, from the people talking to what they think is gonna happen and or then they, what is happening. Or what is happening. And then someone might say, Oh, it's not gonna happen like that. It's this is what's gonna like all, all that sort of stuff. And all that is really clever and fun. But that's maybe like 15, 20% of the movie. Yeah. There are also, I should point out, characters have names like uh, Chinese George and yes. Backlack and yes. Flat Nose Bill or things like that. No, wait, Goose Fat Bill, Flat yes. Nose Someone Else. Uh, they, <laughs> yeah, well, it's like you said, like it's King Arthur, but what if, or what, but it, but also he knows yes. MMA because yes. why not? Because there's like a one random Asian guy who can teach him MMA. Yeah. I, you never understand what he's, makes no his, sense. What his business is. Yes. Right. I, I and then by the time this movie gets around to the business of fighting Jude Law yeah. for control of Camelot. Londinium, Camelot, it whatever. Is 
much less interesting. Yeah. I mean, it sort of starts with a bang because it has like giant freaking elephants like trashing this I, citadel. No, one of my favorite parts of the movie is that it starts off with what is essentially a last time on King Arthur <laughs> mo- montage <laughs> in which it crams all of this stuff involving Eric Bana, Jude yes. Law, war elephants, uh, yeah. this bad guy we never see except in flashbacks. Right. Uh, we see, you know, and it crams all of that into this really expensive looking montage yeah. that I think in a lot of other movies would have been just like text on screen. Yeah. But, yeah. but was not. There was, there's one super cool visual I thought, which was when um, we find, when you see how like, you know, obviously the famous sword in the stone, when you see like how the sword got in the stone and like, I thought that was cool. And actually that design of that villain, that bad guy that you're talking about that we see in the flashbacks, I thought he was really cool too. He looks um, like there are off, he looks like something out of Game of Thrones. There are often moments. It's very in games which of I mean to me it, it, it has seems like actors it's out of Game of King Thrones. King Arthur, but what if Game of Thrones? Like yes. you could also say it's very clearly inspired by that as well. Yes. Uh, it's inspired by a lot of things. It's it a is. mishmash. I mean to me this it, it reminded me a lot of uh uh the last couple Guy Ritchie movies that he's done, which is like he takes these very famous properties, he kind of keeps them in their period settings, but modernizes the references and the feel and the tone and the editing and the visual effects. Um, you know, Man from Uncle, I thought, was just like this. It looked great, stylish as heck, professionally made, entirely forgettable. I enjoyed Man from Uncle more than this. I will say, I think I, that I, Man I from I Uncle I enjoyed this exactly had, the same. had like more of a sense of wholeness for whatever that's worth that I think that this or the Sherlock Holmes movies did. See, I like the first Sherlock Holmes because it had Robert Downey Jr. I thought giving a really fun performance with Jude Law. Like the two of them were together were great. And even Man from Uncle has has the main guys have chemistry. Here you have Charlie Hunnam who's he looks great. My goodness, he's a handsome man. And at least he doesn't have to talk in a horrible English act American accent, which he does often and almost ruins every single thing he does. Yes. He can talk in an English accent, and that is a relief. But he's just not that charismatic, and the guys he's with, he doesn't have a ton of chemistry with. No, and he doesn't have one kind of uh, person to play off of, no, specifically. It's, it, it, that's, to me, where the, the biggest deficiency compared to those movies is. Sure. But it's fine. It's it's forgettable. Yeah, there's there's nothing special about this. And I, I, I'm very curious as to how it's going to do because I do not feel like the world was crying out for another King Arthur reimagining. I mean, I could be wrong, but I assume it's going to do very poorly because I don't think anyone cares. Like, yes. why would anyone go see it? I don't know. Maybe I'll be wrong. I, I, I wouldn't mind if I was wrong. It's fine. I just, I don't expect much. Yes. Very quickly here. Yes. Because it, before we speak to our listeners again, uh, a much bigger movie, I think, or more notable at least movie is coming out next week the following week may 19th you have seen it i have not it is alien covenant it is alien Covenant. this is the latest prequel to alien but it's also a sequel sequel to to prometheus yes it's the yeah well said (laughs) and it is directed by ridley scott who directed the original alien did not make any of the sequels but then came back for prometheus uh, so this movie, the early reviews that i've read are very mixed some people really like it some people really dislike it yes well, I, I really like it. I also like Prometheus, so I yes, feel like that's the qualifier that, that I think needs qualifier. to be stated. Yes, uh, I I think that this movie, if you are hoping for a return to the original form, the kind of uh, humans versus aliens uh, horror or action movie that were the first two were Alien and Aliens, you will be disappointed. This movie leans further into the Prometheus themes about uh, creation and God and these origin stories and faith. 
And I think it pulls it off really well. I think it actually, in fact, I would say clarifies a bit some of these things that I think certain people, like a lot of people read as annoying in Prometheus, particularly the way the humans are portrayed. I think it kind of clarifies intention a bit more. Uh, and it gives it's it gives a lot of focus to Michael Fassbender, who plays two characters in this, and who is very good. I, this, I mean, these movies are very kind of like almost operatic, and like uh, aim for this grandeur, philosophical grandeur that I understand deeply annoys some people, but mm. that I actually think works really well. Mm, that makes one of us. Uh huh. And it definitely it features incarnations of the aliens okay but i don't think i think for a lot of people they will not be given enough screen time they will be you're saying there's not enough alien in the movie right. called alien covenant for an audience just looking for aliens yes going to see where they put them on all the posters it's just the poster is literally a big fat alien face and the title is alien covenant like that's and so you're so you're warning our listeners here i am warning you yes they go the focus i would say the focus of this movie is at least as much, if not more, about the relationships between synthetics and humans than it is about the re- like relationship between humans and, and these xenomorphs. Yes. Interesting. All right. Well, that's a, that's a helpful note, I'm sure, for our listeners as well. All right. I'm I'm hoping to see it next week. Well, we'll see what happens. I was not a fan of Prometheus necessarily. Yes. So you you think I won't like it? I think you will not like it. All right. Well, we'll find out. All right, let's get to Behind the Eight Ball, where we wrap things up on every episode of SVU by giving you some new releases on streaming, some listener recommendations that you guys have sent to us at our email address, svu at filmspottingsvu.com. And uh, we also give you one film from my list. Matt, you want to go first this time? Sure. All right. Well, give me three new releases. First up on Netflix is Anvil, the story of Anvil, a terrific documentary about an obscure heavy metal band from Canada. They're basically the real-life Spinal Tap, and this film is a very funny but also very affectionate, not mocking portrait of the two main guys in the band, Steve and Rob, and their enduring decades-long friendship. I love this movie. Uh, I have not had a chance to see it again recently, but I added it to my, my list myself just so, like, you know, if I need something, a, a pick me up uh, coming up uh, in, the, in the next couple of weeks, I can pop it in just for a few minutes and watch. It's, it has a fantastic ending. The ending is one of the all-time great movie endings. I agree with you. Yes, that is Anvil, the story of Anvil. It is available now on Netflix. Next up on Tubi TV is Eight Men Out, John Sayles' drama about the Black Sox scandal of the 19-teens when members of the Chicago White Sox agreed to throw the 1919 World Series. It has a great cast, John Cusack, Christopher Lloyd, John Mahoney, D.B. Sweeney, David Strathairn, Michael Rooker, and Charlie Sheen, who actually, the people don't know this, he was actually required by law to appear in every baseball movie made in the 1980s. Either him or Kevin Costner. That was the rule. That was the law. They had to work hard. They were very busy. So that's Eight Men Out, and that is available on 2B TV. Finally, uh, available on Hulu, a documentary that caught my eye that I have not seen, but I'm very curious to check out. I think it's a Hulu original. It's called Batman and Bill, and it is about one of the most important writers of the 20th century whose work is almost universally beloved and yet universally unknown, or at least he is universally unknown. His name is Bill Finger. He is the co-creator of Batman along with Bob Kane, but it's Kane who – you know, I, and I have to see the movie to find out exactly why. He is the one who really got all the credit, all the fame, all the money – 
for the creation of Batman, but it is Bill Finger who worked with him on all of these early issues. He co-wrote or wrote the the first script for the first issue of Batman, Detective Comics number 27, and Bill Finger was instrumental in the creation of the Robin and also the Joker. Without Bill Finger, we might not have any of these characters, but his work went unrecognized for decades. And so I'm hoping this story, you know, I even as I know that, I don't really know the full story. So I'm hoping that this documentary kind of explains it all for me. It's one I'm going to be watching myself, Batman and Bill, available on Hulu. Okay, how about two listener recommendations? Our first comes from a longtime listener who I believe we met at our recent live show in Chicago, Jason. Uh, He writes, after Fifty Shades Darker, allow me to offer some much-deserved Jamie Dornan alternate programming. For those that doubt he has acting chops, you need to check out the Netflix original show, The Fall. The show makes Silence of the Lambs look like Silence of the Puppies. There's no cannibalism, but serial killers abound. It's a crime detective drama that is smartly smartly paced and takes place in modern-day Northern Ireland. The last series of the show just wrapped last year, and it's arguable that the very last episode sticks the landing. However, creator Alan Kubit offers some master storytelling all around. Uh, You will not regret the shades of gray on display in this show. I see what you did there, Jason. So that is The Fall... And that is a recommendation from Jason. Thank you, Jason. We also got a recommendation from Brian, who writes, I am writing to recommend the documentary Sunshine Hotel, which is now available on Amazon Prime. This is a documentary from 2001 that captures the lives of the men living in one of the last flop houses in the Bowery in New York. These men live in cubicles with chicken wire ceilings. They all arrive there through various combinations of mental illness and substance abuse. It's a fascinating insight into the lives of these men, all of whom are given respect despite their circumstances, as well as the history of New York City. This type of place was already disappearing when the movie was made, and I can only imagine what the neighborhood looks like now. That's the Sunshine Hotel available on Amazon Prime, and that was a recommendation from Brian. And thank you, Brian. I'm really interested to see this movie because... Uh, years now, this is um, this would have been after the documentary was made, just a couple of years, two thousand and three ish, I guess. I lived around the corner from the Sunshine Hotel; it was still there at the time. I don't know if it had closed by the time that I had moved, like two years later. So it was the very, very end. I think it did. Um, so, but I'm I'm really interested to uh, to to watch this now. So I didn't know it existed. I'm going to be checking it out. Thank you, Brian. Okay, how about one from your my list? You gave me number six. And number six this time is Trouble with the Curve. The Clint Eastwood movie. He didn't direct it, but uh, he stars in it. Slowed by age and failing eyesight, crack baseball scout Gus Lobel takes his grown daughter along as he checks out the final prospect of his career. I never saw this movie. I did, and I remember very little about it. Yes, it was the King Arthur Legend of the Sword of baseball scout movies starring yes. Clint Eastwood. Well, I never saw it, and I and saw Amy it. Adams. Amy right? Adams plays yeah. the daughter. Yeah, I saw it popped up on Netflix, and I, I threw it on there recently um, because I do I do tend to like a, the occasional Clint Eastwood movie, especially when he's old and cranky. It speaks to me. It speaks to me. The old cranky guy in, deep within my soul. So I added that to my my list recently. All right, Allison, are you ready to give us your picks? No. 
Are you ready now? Okay. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. All right. Let's start with three new releases. All right. First up, new to Amazon, Manchester by the Sea. Kenneth Lonergan's Best Picture nominee, starring Casey Affleck, Lucas Hedges, Michelle Williams. Extremely sad, but also pretty funny, which is an aspect of it that I don't think that most people uh, see highlighted story about a man who is brought back to his New England town uh, to confront the tragedy that made him leave and to take care of his nephew after the death of his brother. Uh, That is on Amazon. And new to Netflix is Don't Think Twice. Uh, I did not love comedian Mike Birbiglia's directorial debut, Sleepwalk With Me, but I did love his follow-up, which is a less directly autobiographical, but clearly drawn from firsthand experience, movie about comedians. It's really a drama, I would say, about comedians, about an improv troupe in New York City uh, among the actors playing them, uh, Gillian Jacobs and Keegan-Michael Key. Their space is about to be sold, and each member has to wrestle with their whether the fact that they're ever going to be more famous, the reality if they're ever going to be more famous or more successful than they already are. Do you love a good movie about dreams dying? <laughs> it's on <laughs> Netflix. Uh, and finally, also new to Netflix, Things to Come. You know, Isabella Pair got a lot of attention for her role in Paul Verhoeven's L for understandable reasons, mm-hmm. but I would say she's maybe even better in this movie. Which I is, definitely like that. Yeah, movie better. A, another 2016 movie directed by Mia Hansen Love, who did Eden and Goodbye First Love and Father of My Children. Uh, in this movie, Upair plays Natalie Chazot, who is a philosophy professor who in late middle age, suddenly finds herself kind of losing her husband, her publisher, uh, and a parent, and her kids are off, have already left home, suddenly free from all of these ties and has to reorient herself in life. It's it's really well done. I, I love Hanson Loves Movies, and this is another very good one. Uh, things to come on Netflix. How about two listener recommendations? First up, we have one from Alex who writes, Hey guys, I want to recommend a documentary on HBO called Tickled. The premise is about a gay New Zealand journalist who comes across an online sport called Competitive Endurance Tickling, where young athletic men are on camera tickling each other for money. Yes, this is a real thing on the internet. Anyway, this journalist discovers a dark web of corruption and fear involved with the organization uh, that makes these videos. The documentary starts off as a hilarious curiosity where you think uh, that you're going to be laughing the whole time just because of the absurdity that is guys tickling each other other on YouTube. However, it gets very scary and creepy toward the end, and you're left in this total uh, WTF did I just watch state. Uh, It is a great documentary that provides the viewer an insight that A, the weirdness of the internet, uh, B, how corruption has no limits, even when it involves tickling. Uh, What starts off as a whimsical special turns into a real-life horror movie. I highly recommend checking it out, and everyone I have recommended it to has seen it out of morbid curiosity. Thank you, Alex. I would also recommend Tickled. Have you seen that, Matt? I have. It's a really interesting documentary. Yes, it definitely goes places you don't expect. No, that is 100%. No one could argue with that. All right. Uh, Second recommendation comes from Michelle in Ottawa, who writes, I hope you don't mind me recommending something from what I believe is a Canada-only streaming service called Crave TV. 
Their focus is on TV shows and documentaries with a great selection of classic TV shows like The Wire, South Park, Seinfeld. Uh, they also have a pretty decent lineup of music documentaries, which is where my recommendation of Kurt Cobain, Montage of Heck, comes in. I had been dying to see this film since it came out and was thrilled to randomly find it on Crave a couple weeks ago. The documentary weaves together talking head interviews with key subjects in Cobain's life, like his mother, his pre-Courtney ex-girlfriend, Courtney herself... Uh, Novoselic, uh, though curiously no Dave Grohl, with Cobain's artwork, sound collages, and scratchy home recordings, uh, the latter of which are easily the most interesting part of the film and help to paint a portrait of a troubled artist that has been the subject of seemingly endless and conventional behind-the-music docs. Rest assured, this doc is not remotely conventional. I highly recommend it to anyone interested in artist portrait documentaries. And of course, it helps to be a fan of Cobain's work, but is certainly not a requirement. Uh, thank you for that, Michelle. It is available for rent here in the U.S. It was on HBO Now for a while, but it actually just expired off of that. Hmm. But you can find it for rent on all the usual platforms. Kurt Cobain, Montage of Heck. Okay, and how about one film chosen blindly by number from your Molly? Goosebumps. Thank you. Uh, you gave me number two. That is Small Crimes. This is a Netflix original movie. I It's very interesting to me how much less of a push Netflix has given to its original movies so far. This is another one that kind of got flung out there. <laughs> It premiered at South by Southwest this year and then kind of got flung out into Netflix, uh, noticed by very few people. It stars Game of Thrones' own Nicholas Coster Valdo as a disgraced ex-cop who's just been released after a six-year stint in prison for attempted murder. Why it's on my my list is that it's directed by E.L. Katz, who right. did Cheap Thrills, a film that we both liked. Really good movie. Yeah, and it is also co-written by Macon Blair, who's I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore, we talked about on a recent yes. episode. And that also went directly from a film festival, in that case, Sundance, to Netflix. To Netflix. Uh, so... You know, I, I think that I feel like Netflix could also use the Homer eating the donuts as like a metaphor as well, because they just keep throwing so much content they at do. you. And some of it's acquired and some of it's co-produced. Right. And I think with the movies, I mean, I think that will certainly shift a bit as they have some big movies coming right. out. They in, haven't. In yeah. This year. But they have not got it down yet where I would say oh. they figured out what to do with original movies yet. But that is uh, that is available if you're interested. Small crimes. All right. Listener choice options for our next episode. We're going all TV. Uh, speaking of new content being shoved down our th yeah. you know, throats, so, so we got a all, lot. I will say these are all TV with like uh, various film connections, as is the case these days. That is usually the case these days. Yeah, but we've got three new series on three different platforms, <laughs> um, all uh, highly, highly regarded. I guess one of them hasn't quite premiered as we are about to talk about it, but the other two have and gotten incredible reviews. The third one, I know that, well, we'll get to it. Why don't you start? You have the first one. Okay, first up, your first option is Dear White People on Netflix. This is Justin Simeon's Netflix original series adapted from his own acclaimed 2014 film. That was his directorial debut about the lives of a group of black students attending a mostly white liberal arts college. Um, 
It is uh, funny. It is a comedy, but also tackles race in America, but also tackles college as a place where you try and hammer out your identity and try on different identities. It's gotten a lot of praise. Mm -hmm. And I've heard from some people it's better than the movie and from other people that it uh, expands, at least it has room to expand on some of the themes that were in the film. So Dear White People, that's your first option. It is on Netflix right now. Our next option will be available on Amazon Prime starting on May 12th, although you could watch the pilot right now and that's the main reason why we're particularly interested in this it is i love dick created by jill soloway who's also of course creator of transparent and it tells the story i'm reading from the amazon website here of a struggling married couple chris and silver and their obsession with a charismatic professor named dick told in rashomon style shifts of pov i love dick charts the unraveling of a marriage the awakening of an artist and the deification of a reluctant messiah not enough deification in television plot synopsis, in my enough. opinion. The main cast is Griffin Dunn, Kevin Bacon as Dick, and the awesome and perpetually underappreciated Catherine Hahn. We talked about the pilot for I Love Dick on SVU number 120. Our main review on that episode was that Amazon pilot season where they do this thing where they show you their pilots, and I guess they let people kind of vote on them or talk give about feedback, them, yeah. give feedback. They ultimately decide what gets picked up and not, but it's a way for them to sort of gauge what they have and the appetite for the shows. And I believe this is the first one of that batch to be at least, I don't know if they picked up all of them. I know they, they are making The Tick. That was another show, but that hasn't appeared yet. Um, we are getting I Love Dick on May 12th. I have so many TV shows to watch right now that I just don't have, including um, both of the sh other shows you're talking about and some of the other shows that have already come out, like Bosch. I still haven't gotten through you Bosch. I love Bosch. I love Bosch, and I have no time to watch Bosch. I already watched Bosch. You watched the whole season? Yeah. Ugh, I'm so jealous. Any <laughs> anyway, but but when I saw the... Subway ad this week for I Love Dick coming back. I went, oh, I got really excited because I was like, I love that pilot. That was a great it pilot. was a great pilot. We great both pilot. felt far and away that was the best of those pilots. Yeah. And I was like, I can't wait to watch it. And I have no time. But this would give me a good excuse to watch it. There so that's go. option two. I Love Dick, available on Amazon Prime on May 12th. And your third option is a show that is rolling out as opposed to the two other streaming services. Hulu drops a few episodes and then does a weekly rollout that is a bit more like traditional television. It is The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, the first really like the first breakout series for Hulu. Uh, Hulu has been experimenting with original programming for some time, but has never had a series that has gotten the kind of attention that this has. Yeah. Uh, adapted from Margaret Atwood's 1985 novel of the same name and brought to the small screen by showrunner Bruce Miller and cinematographer turned filmmaker Reed Murano. She serves as an executive producer and directed the first three episodes. And the show has gotten a lot of attention for its look as well as its uh, frighteningly timely subject matter. Um, stars Elizabeth Moss set in a dystopian future shaped by religious fanaticism and a declining birth rate in which fertile women like Moss's character are assigned as handmaids to elite couples to bear children for them. Uh, we could probably arrange to get a little, see a bit more of the film or of the, t of the show so that we can, you know, talk about it as a larger whole since I believe four or five episodes are out already but i you know it's a show that's been getting talked about a lot so i'm sure we would both have a lot to say about that the handmaid's tale on hulu 
Which movie should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Units? Send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com or just enter in the poll on our website, filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, May 15th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu. And you'll have all that week to watch the TV show this time and then join us for our conversation on our next episode, which should be on around, on or around Tuesday, May 23rd. Filmspottingsvu.com, newly designed, redesigned, is also mm. where you can find our show archive. And we know we're slowly moving over some of the older episodes. So sorry if you've been tried to find them and haven't been able to yet. We're working on it. Um, you can also find a list of direct links to all the titles we discuss on the episode. The Filmspotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can find more of Vince's work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. And we will be back in two weeks with more recommendations and the review you pick. And in the meantime, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Allison Wilmore. Matt is at Matt Singer. And please do follow the show at Film Spotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each listener's choice poll and where I share more streaming suggestions on various platforms and ones that come from you guys, the SVU listeners. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>